Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Tech Analyst Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Schrout, Principal Analyst at Schrout Research, joined once again by Patrick Moorhead, Principal Analyst at More Insights and Strategy. Patrick, good to talk to you again. I feel like it's been forever. Ryan, yeah, I think it has. You know, we, we did the, uh, the ARM announcement, gosh, what, uh, two weeks ago. So Yeah, pre-recorded, so it's kind of screwing me up a little bit with its release. So. I know, but thankfully, we have Computex come in and bring us a ton of new content to talk about. Man, there's 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 a ton of stuff here, more than we can really get to in in our, our typical window. So we we've narrowed it down to the to the big guys, the big the the big tech giants here. Uh, Computex is always interesting for me. I haven't been in a while. It's been five five or six years since I've been, um, but I used to go every year religiously. It was it was you know twelve years in a row I went. It is one of the more interesting shows as it uh, really focuses on like consumer client devices, you know, even down to the component level. And you really don't have any shows like that anymore. No, we don't. And Computex is also the epicenter of where all the ODMs are. Yep. There, not only is there a ton of stuff done in, in Taiwan, but it's also a, a gateway to China. So if, yep. it, if it's going to be built, it's likely going to be designed or built in that general area of the world. Agreed. So let's jump into it. Um, I will say that we're going to start with Intel, and they had a uh, one of the earlier press conferences at the event. Um, one thing that stood out to me just before we nail down any of the specifics is that this was uh, a, a more component-based talk from Intel that I feel like we've had in several years from this company. It's not. It wasn't pie in the sky. Um, future of uh, communication and interaction and how humans are going to evolve and all this stuff. There were no drones shown with light shows. This was processors and storage and display technology. And I think it it kind of, for me, showed, uh, you know, partially because of the audience, the Computex audience, but also maybe Intel is is making, coming full circle on some of their mindsets on this. I, I think that's exactly uh, what they did. I mean, they played to their audience. I mean, who the audience was the PC industry and PC yep. and the server industry. So they knew they had to play. Competition is getting fierce, as we'll talk about as we get into AMD and Qualcomm. And I think it was important for them to really set the tone that says, listen, we are Intel and we are very serious about the PC market. Yeah. So the, the the demos they did specifically, the announcements, um, some of the easy ones, they announced Whiskey Lake Y and Amber Lake U, or maybe I have those backwards, um, basically upcoming 15-watt and, you know, sort of s- circa 7-watt parts, uh, iterations uh, for mobile spaces, you know, claiming up to double-digit performance gains on both of these. These are not new process node products these are kind of 14 nanometer you know dot three you know plus 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 however you want to look at this um not a whole lot there from timeline wise either they did announce this was something that had been rumored in the enthusiast community for a while the core i7 8086k processor which comes on the 40th anniversary of the original x86 processor, the 8086 from Intel. It offers some really high clock speeds. Uh, Intel's going to give away 8,086 of them in a sweepstakes. They're apparently only building 50,000 of these parts. Uh, and I think it goes on sale today or tomorrow, depending on when you're listening to this. Uh, so it's an interesting 
nod to the enthusiast community. It's still a six core part. It's the same coffee lake architecture that we have seen in the market with the 8700K. So not nothing revolutionary in that, but being able to hit, you know, this one is is officially rated at five gigahertz. So that's uh that's a pretty impressive takeaway for the for that enthusiast community. And then um, the the big demo that is also has turned out to be quite controversial was this 28 core processor demo. They ran they they were talking about their future generations of X series, which is their kind of hyper enthusiast, ultra high end workstation class parts. Um, and they demoed a 28 core part running at five gigahertz on all cores, which for people who maybe don't follow the computing uh, uh, metrics to this level of detail, that is an incredibly high clock speed with an incredibly high core count. Um, they did this. They ran some scores. They ran a particular benchmark that everybody uses called Cinebench that was, by my math, 2.2x faster than any other processor I had tested that wasn't overclocked. So more than double the previous best. But as it turned out, there were some interesting things here. I don't know how much you followed this, Patrick, that they were running. In order to get to those clock speeds, they were running it through a water chiller, which is basically using air conditioning refrigerant. It gets the water down to about four degrees Celsius, requires some heavily insulated tubing. It's like a one horsepower motor to run that. Um, this was not off the shelf consumer cooling, you know, even, even by enthusiast class right? Water cooling type stuff. Um, so they got a lot of pushback and flack from some of the media and community around that. Um, what did you take away from, from that demo and their decision to do something like that? So I was initially super excited. Um, but I think in the end, it, it kind of played into AMD's hands as, as, as we'll talk about. Um, yeah. Intel's in a very precarious and interesting position right now in that all of their future designs, architectures are, are locked into 10 nanometer. And that's a 2019 uh, phenomena. So mm. I think that um, um, Intel wanted to show that, listen, we have this beastly of a configuration uh, as well. But I do think it, it does show just how far the company needs to go to, to, to get that performance. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, I, I agree. It's there. I think both AMD and Intel wanted to be the 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 high flying flagship announcement of like high core count products from from this show but they both went about it in uh, very very different ways as we'll talk about when we get to AMD as well. I do want to end on a couple of uh more positive notes from the Intel one. They showed um you know with, with all the pressure they're getting from Qualcomm on extended battery life, they I think made a really good decision to you know not focus on their processor battery life or, the, or processor power efficiency, I should say, and what the pr future of 10 nanometer may or may not bring. And instead, they used the other angle, which is, hey, we're Intel and we have muscle in this market that nobody else has. We can work with partners. We can kind of force things along. And one of them that they showed was uh, a demonstration of this is low power displays. Um, they talked about being able to integrate notebook monitors that use one watt of power instead of two watts of power, which doesn't sound like a lot until you realize that the display is usually the highest power draw, you know, component of a notebook. And they talked about taking a, uh, uh, a Dell 
I forget which device it was, an XPS 13 maybe, some Dell device uh, that was getting 20 hours of battery life on their testing, integrating this new display technology and getting 24 hours of battery life. And I think that's, that's a really compelling thing that not every other company can, can duplicate. Yeah, the devil's in the details on this. Uh, I, I love the value proposition, but you know we know nothing about the display quality, uh, refresh rate, uh, colors, flicker, uh, all that, all that good stuff. But uh, you know, where has this technology been for so many years? It just yeah. magically uh, springs up here. So I'm gonna have to do a lot of work to get underneath the uh, the pros and the cons. Uh, sure. You know, how, who's making it? How many vendors? Is it single source? Blah blah blah. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably it's it seems to me again they didn't give a whole lot of detail a a combination of software hardware internally and then you know changes to the display itself panel um, panel self refresh has been a technology that I've heard mentioned many many times um, but that doesn't seem to. To, to ever show up. This may be some some deviation or delineation of that. The other thing that they uh, talked about a lot was this two-screen future. Um, and it was the idea that future laptops and mobile devices would have two screens on them rather than a, a, a one display and one keyboard interaction that you would have uh, displays on both portions of this, you would maybe interact with uh, digital keyboards on that, or the the, sc- the bottom screen could just be an extended display, or it could be uh, a unique interface, whatever piece of software you have to be using. They showed um, a couple of demos. One came on stage from Asus, was a really future-looking, I think it was called the Asus Precog uh, which has, has its own implications. Uh, but, but it was called that mostly because it also included the Intel Movidius uh, VPU chip in there that was apparently handling you know, hand recognition and gesture recognition uh, on the device. And it was you know, Intel trying to present, again, more than just, hey, we make chips. Hey, we, we believe we create and kind of build out the future direction of computing as a whole while everybody else follows us. Did you take anything away from that messaging or any of those those on-stage demos? So I'm a big fan of these uh, two display devices uh, for two different reasons. For standard notebooks, I do think that, uh, that, that that is the future. I think that you're gonna wanna have some feedback when you do touch the keyboard. I used a, a Lenovo device uh, about a year ago that did did give some sort of feedback. I'm a I'm not a touch typist, so I don't I don't need to have those keys. And I think uh-huh. re- reprogramming the keyboard to do different things like music, um, editing, and and things like that, I think are are full of things. But I'm even more interested in these these dual productivity devices where you might have uh, a regular display and then a low power display. There's still uh, literally uh, billions of people still using paper. And, right. and I'm one of them. And, yeah, and, 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 legal, <laughs> and legal pads. And this whole notion and this whole kind of revolution, there's been a lot of research done that says people actually uh, keep, uh, retain, and learn better when they write things down. So I'm, I'm even more excited about those types of devices a la Microsoft Courier. Right. Um, but again, value prop has to be there from a battery life standpoint uh, and a performance standpoint. Um, I don't, 
you know, we might be there in 2019, but uh, I don't know. I'm optimistic. Yeah. I, I think there, based on what I have seen and heard recently, there's there are a lot of players at work here, and I, I do think this will be something that is a, a significant 2019, 2019 push. All right, moving away from Intel and getting down to AMD, uh, we'll just jump into that Threadripper demo, start with that. It was... Um, you know, Threadripper is a, a significant product for AMD. It's probably not a huge volume, but it's a good margin. Uh, and it also kind of created this Halo product status for the company where, you know, not only were they the first to bring eight core Ryzen parts to mainstream and kind of lower enthusiast segments, they brought out a 16 core for the ultra high end, that the kind of HEDT user at a point when Intel only had 10 core parts available. And it forced kind of a, a, a shift in that market. Intel eventually released 16 and then 18 core versions. AMD's uh, SVP Jim Anderson got on stage announced that the second generation of Threadripper, the Threadripper 2000 series that's using the Zen Plus core, 12 nanometer, all that, was actually going to use 32 cores, up to 32 cores, with 64 threads on it. So essentially doubling core and thread count in the span of a year. Uh, these are going to be available in Q3. They did do some demos. They demoed the 24-core against Intel's currently shipping 18-core, showed it you know, beating out performance by a good margin, although not specifically mentioning timings and all that. Uh, and then they did show the 32-core up and running. Now, what's interesting to me is they had to do this the day after Intel's 28-core 5 gigahertz demo, which was both positive and negative for them, I would imagine. My guess is, and I don't have any not confirmed this, that they were probably going to show some performance numbers, right? They were going to show some score of some kind. Um, but because Intel had put a score out there in a test that was, you know, again, highly unusually cooled, right? And so not a, not a good comparison point for anything. They didn't want to put out a number that was less than the competition. So they might have pulled that back at the end. And instead, you know, there was a comment or two during the press conference about, hey, we're running this on air cooling. We don't need any exotic phase change or water chilling uh, devices in order to run at these performance levels. And you'll be able to buy it in Q3. Um, and I thought it was an actually... That was actually a really powerfully delivered message of, you know, the continued execution of the company and all that that we have mentioned on the podcast several times. But also, we believe we're, we're doing stuff better. We have the better roadmap. We have the better capability to build these products. Um, and 32 cores on a socket is a lot for a consumer part, kind of bringing it up to uh, – epic levels of, uh, of core count there. Any thoughts on, on what they did with Threadripper? Yeah, so first of all, big picture, everybody needs their hot rods, right? I've done, I did product sure. marketing, uh, I had a real job before this one, did product marketing for almost 20 years, and it's hard to be sexy in the mainstream, right? So you have to have these hot rods to, to use as a halo to, to give more credence to what you can do in in the mid range and and mainstream, yeah. So yeah, these are low volume, but what they're intended to do is to show just how insane uh, it, it can get. And I thought AMD is. I mean, it's the new Threadripper is nothing but um, um, impressive. Yeah. I mean, I didn't expect the doubling of core count no, and, uh, at all. Now, I, we don't know frequency, so I'll, I'll, I'll hold that back. Um, even if it's at 250 watts, 
uh, I'm okay with that. But it's obviously air cooling. So essentially, yeah. now, now I could see the, the Intel 28 core, five gig uh, water chiller uh, performing very similarly uh, to it because uh, Intel architecture has an, a better IPC. But sure. um, the question is, are you going to actually want to have a separate uh, chiller? How much are you gonna wanna pay for that? And we don't even know, I mean, that five gigahertz seems to me to be overclocked, not- Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's impossible that it's not, if literally they just released a six core part with a peak turbo of five gigahertz and that was kind of a big deal, right? So the fact that you could get 28 cores on a single socket up to that is is beyond it's it's well beyond what any consumer will be able to get to it without you know spending a thousand dollars on on additional cooling devices right yeah yeah and right now i've got i really have to give amd the benefit of the doubt when it comes to execution the last 18 mm -hmm. months they've given me no reason to question them yeah. and right now i'm in a i'm not in a show me i'm in a uh, i'm going to take what amd says uh, to the bank right now agreed uh, speaking of other processors, they did. They mentioned Epic. Uh, they talked through their momentum with Cisco. Uh, Cisco design wins. HPE design wins. Tencent deployment. Um, you know, had had quotes on there from I believe it was HP and Tencent talking about twenty five or thirty percent lower cost per VM for some of their workloads, which I think is a really significant momentum uh, uh, enabling. And you know, they they basically. Wanted to show people that, yeah, hey, Epic, we understand it ramps slower. It is a is slower uptick than maybe they'd expected, maybe than we expected, but it is still there. It's still growing. It's not a it's not a stagnant uh, space. And then they also held up a Zen two base, Epic. The I think the code name on that is Rome, which is actually a seven nanometer version of Epic. They didn't go into any more details about core counts officially or clock speeds or anything like that, but said they were going to be sampling in the second half of this year uh, and launching in 2019. And that's pretty much a direct dig at, hey, we're going to have seven nanometer sampling this year, uh, well ahead of kind of what the competition is doing with their 10 nanometer. And uh, we're going to have volume shipment of this uh, in, in 2019. Um, what was your anything takeaway on the epic side? I mean, this is this is it's kind of like a it's a it's a longer, more difficult story to tell than the consumer side because it is kind of slower moving. So, just a little bit of background um, for a server part, it takes about a new server part takes about twelve uh, months of qualification. Okay, then the second version might take six to nine. The, the CSPs uh. might take about six months. And let's compare that to about three months of testing uh, from a, on a consumer desktop. So okay. the testing time is just radically different because the stakes are higher. Uh, you know, you're playing um, PUBG and, you know, your system stops. You know, the world doesn't come to an end. But, you know, it's, when it's running banking transactions uh, for millions mm -hmm. of people, it, it's a much bigger deal. So there's a much higher uh, reliability, availability, uh, serviceability, RAS capability. So I wasn't expecting uh, big volumes until probably the back half of 2018. But the icing on the cake is this seven nanometer in that, you know, let's just say we won't see 10 nanometer Intel server parts until the back half of 2019. Uh, there's even some rumors of Q1 2020. 
uh, AMD is going to have uh, a, a serious run here, uh, I, yeah. I, I believe. Now, listen, <laughs> Intel has 98% market share, and it's going to take a, a long time for that to erode, but even one or two digits, I mean, we're talking billions of dollars in revenue here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Uh, and then the last thing I'll mention on the AMD side is they did demonstrate uh, a Vega GPU running on a seven nanometer, second seven nanometer version of Vega, I should say, running. Uh, it was doing a ray tracing demo inside Cinema 4D. Um, that is again a uh, sampling now shipping late 2018, second half 2018 product. It, it it's a it's an interesting thing because they, they didn't mention anything about the consumer market with it. It was strictly, you know, it's an instinct branded device, which is their server data center class product. It's 32 gigs of HBM2 memory. It's a significant part. And they talked about, you know, uh, improvements for deep learning operations, improvements for virtualization uh, f- for this particular GPU. It, it's you know, NVIDIA has not talked through, has not demoed its seven nanometer, seven nanometer products. They're all, you know, working in that process node at this point. Um, do you believe that – there's two options for me. Either this Vega seven nanometer product design is kind of like a test case. They're kind of working through the kinks of the design process. They want to be able to get some recognition for it. Maybe, you know, sell a handful as well. Or do you believe that they honestly think that this is going to be their first line of attack against NVIDIA in the data center space? So NVIDIA owns 99% of the machine learning market in the data center. So they have everything to lose to Osborne. And I don't think that 7 nanometer is, is in a position or a price to go uh, mainstream and big volume. So... NVIDIA has nothing to gain by bringing something like this out. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then if I look at consumer gaming, I mean, NVIDIA owns pretty much everything uh, in the $249 and above space on the consumer side, right? So yeah. NVIDIA has nothing to gain and everything to lose by Osborning itself and showing uh, seven nanometer designs. I, I do think, though... Um, AMD does get some mind share out of this, uh, but but you know again I'll get back to there's the hardware and then there's the software, right? I think uh, Rockham is pretty uh, impressive, and and if the company can attach Rockham's success to this early seven nanometer uh, silicon and get it to some very influential customers, I think that they gain credibility. But this is you know this is a multi-year effort here. Yeah. Interesting. Speaking of which, we'll jump into what NVIDIA had to show. They didn't, it was kind of a surprisingly tame announcement window for them. They had their uh, Taiwan based GPU technology conference just the week before. Jensen did have kind of a, it was a press conference slash, you know, private, invited, invite only type Q&A with media and analysts. Um, on the gaming side, no news. And in fact, maybe the opposite of that. Jensen was quoted as saying it was going to be, quote, a long time before their next generation gaming GPUs came out, which uh, based on my analysis, a lot of people in the enthusiast market were not excited to hear. Yeah. Now, to be fair, that's 
that could mean 60 days. That could mean 30 days. It could mean 180 days. Um, and I'm sure, I'm sure that the PR people uh, at NVIDIA were not super excited to have that have that particular line come out there but no new no new geforce cards released they did talk through uh their hgx2 product which was uh, it's essentially a nvidia provided platform for other odms and vendors to design machine learning servers around so the dgx2 which was announced at gtc in march i believe is nvidia's you know Two teraflop, super high end, um, two petaflop, sorry, uh, super high end machine learning server that they're selling for what, 400 grand, something like that. It is based on HGX2, but now this provides the opportunity for other ODMs that want to build customized versions of this or, or design systems around it or you know, use different processors, different configurations of GPUs, gives them the flexibility to do, to do some of that. Otherwise, NVIDIA showed. Their Isaac's Robotics platform, which is kind of a $1,200 dev kit, which is actually aggressively priced for the type of compute you're getting and for the the platforms that they're targeting. Uh, It includes hardware, software tools, uh, even simulation capability if you want to basically build a robot in this virtual environment, have it train and learn you know, without having to interact, break, run over people in the real world, you have that capability to do that. Uh, the Jetson Xavier platform that it's based on is eight is an eight-core ARM CPU, 512 uh, CUDA cores, Volta cores, 9 billion transistors. And, and Jensen continues to talk about this being the most complex chip ever built um, for compute, right? So it's an, it's an impressive uh assortment of, of hardware kind of mixed in here. And I, you know, they're basically targeting, this isn't a, it's not a consumer facing product, but they're targeting, you know, delivery, industrial drones, uh, logistics, manufacturing, those types of, uh, of segments with this particular product. I think the, I think the Jetson, Jetson Xavier and Isaac Robotics are one of the undercovered NVIDIA areas. And so first off, it's, it's very it's a smaller market but it it has the highest rate of growth so i think once these markets explode i can see a lot of the narrative moving from nvidia amazing in the data center to nvidia amazing on the edge yeah they do have a unique value prop and they have this monster gpu uh and and uh, over provisioning for machine learning with a GPU is a pretty good idea. And then when you get to devices that are either plugged in on the machine floor with uh, robotics uh, putting together cars, let's say, or larger battery devices like a wheeled robot uh, where, you know, a, a, a watt difference isn't the end of the world, this is where I think NVIDIA, NVIDIA really shines. Yeah, and I, I, I agree with you. I think the addressable market for this segment, these kind of smart cities, smart hospitals, uh, environments is going to be huge. And I, I do think you're right. It will expand past what the what the data center market can do. It's just whether it's it's slightly slower development or maybe the data center training capability has to be finalized before we get into 
you know, applying these AI constructs to all of the, you know, these edge devices, or maybe it's just that it's, it's just not the new sexy thing that investors are interested in. I, I, I agree with you that the, the potential for these Jetson platforms may likely exceed um, what, what they can do on the, uh, even on the machine learning on their GPU side. So. Yeah. And on, on Turing, I mean, why does NVIDIA have to move, right? Um, I I get the excitement. Listen, new is always better, right? Who doesn't want an 1180 or a 1280 or whatever the heck uh, they're going to call it? But, you know, tee up a game that that can soak all of that. I think that's, that's potentially a new concern, which is... What games are coming out that can completely saturate something like a touring? Let's say, yeah. let's say we have, uh, let's say Nvidia goes two x uh, performance per watt with touring uh, versus what they have now. What what game is going to soak that up? Yeah, that's always kind of been a problem in the enthusiast space. And coming from the enthusiast background that I have, I can tell you that for for a lot of PC gamers, they don't really care. They just want it to be faster than it was before, uh, right? They it, it's been it's been a pretty long cycle here. The GTX 1080 has been out in, in as the flagship kind of mainstream part for a very long time, and you know we still see new 4K monitors, 4K monitors that run at 144 hertz. That's something that Nvidia has been pushing with their HDR capability. You know, shipping this month probably. Um, so. It's kind of always been on the GPU vendor to figure out ways to utilize this horsepower as the software developers struggle to catch up. Uh, so it's always been higher resolutions, higher refresh rates, multi-monitor, uh, multi-GPU, all that. Um, so but it, you're, you're not incorrect, but that's not going to stop this market yeah. from well, demanding. Well, well what, starts, what started to concern me was when the two, three, and four configuration GPU systems... Uh, there was no benefit, and then the uh, the I, the game ISVs stopped programming for yeah. two, three, and four GPUs. So, yep. to me, it's kind of kind of the analogy of kind of a, a castle with moats, right? It's slowly kind of yeah. creeping in on us. Where where you know, I remember when having four GPUs to run, you know, something like Crisis was a requirement. So, anyways, I I, I hope. I hope you're right. You're probably right. Um, but I'm getting a, a, a tad bit concerned right Fair. now. Uh, a couple more uh, companies to cover here. Qualcomm used Computex as its opportunity to, to launch the Snapdragon 850 mobile compute platform, which is uh, it's renamed. So you, if you're paying attention, you've noticed that they've released the Snapdragon 845 for smartphones and now the Snapdragon 850 for PCs, Windows PCs. Uh, it does use the same processor, GPU, DSP combination, but as you note here in our notes, it is really a higher clocked version of that chip. And you can do that because you have thermal headroom, right? You're, you're in a much different uh, physical design, different cooling capability on a Windows PC, a two-in-one convertible than you are on a smartphone. And so they bump it from you know 2.8 to 2.95 gigahertz or something to that effect. Um, but you noted here that maybe the most or maybe the more important announcement 
or actually, before I can move on to that, let me say this. The 850 versus the 835 is the important comparison to make, right? Because 835 is what is in those always connected PCs that we have today. And the 850 is going to offer 30% better CPU and 30% better GPU performance. And I think both of us having used these devices for a while, uh, that 30% is welcome. Right, the, of of the of the concerns that people have around the always on, always connected PC, it is performance and app compatibility. App compatibility is a longer term problem that you know Microsoft has to work through with partners and Qualcomm and, and ARM and everybody involved in that situation. But performance can be addressed simply with new hardware, and I think this will be a, a, a pretty good jump there. Yeah, so it's adding performance exactly where it needs it, which is on integer functions, which directly correlated to how, how Windows work. I don't think this is the end. I kind of see this as a, an improvement along a continuum, but I, yeah. I, I know that I will feel that 30 to 40% overall improvement, and I've been waiting for somebody like Qualcomm to, you know, let's increase the frequency, potentially increase the voltage. <laughs> you know, these devices have huge batteries compared to a phone. And let's see what this uh, sucker can do. And then uh, as I look to the future and I think through ARM's A76 launch, um, things are, are looking really, really good. But, you know, like you said, though, this 64-bit, uh, um, which, which, by the way, to consumers, I don't necessarily see uh, as, as an issue. And I think, I mean, I personally didn't, you know, I ran into one app that I wanted to run that was 64-bit bit only. But um, it appears that Microsoft is, is still serious uh, about this. But I'm, yeah. I'm more excited than ever. And I, I think about 5G as well. Yep. Um, these types of platforms are actually uh, probably more, um, what's the right word? Given the large RF and antenna designs required for mm. 5G, mm -hmm. uh, um, I think these, these are a great entry platform for 5G. I agree. Yeah, I think they'll be better able to take advantage of, of 5G technology easier um, than, than on the smartphone, especially when, we, when, when you're right talking about millimeter wave. As well. Also, uh, this is before Computex, but we haven't talked about it yet. The Snapdragon XR1 chip was announced. This is Qualcomm's. Again, what they're trying to do here is with both the 850 and the XR1, separate out their their product line. Uh, the 845 might be the basis for where these things are going, but they can tweak and modify things to make them higher performance for the 850, and they can tweak and modify things a little bit to make it, um, you know, more. Uh, complementary to the AR VR mark, and that's what the XR1 chip does. It does things like uh, I don't think the first generation of XR1 has LTE connectivity, for example, but it offers the CPU performance, the GPU performance, the DSP, the AI capability, all the things that you need to have for, you know, freestanding, untethered uh, VR headsets, and it allows them to begin the process of differentiating these product lines from the mobile smartphone devices in a way that makes sense. Yeah, I'm glad we're here. I mean, uh, the industry now realizes that um, shoehorning a smartphone processor into an AR or VR device is not optimal. And very similar to uh, ACPCs, this is the beginning, not, not the end. And I think we'll start to see uh, increased optimizations 
uh, mm -hmm. for AR and VR that you won't necessarily see in um, in smartphones. Uh, right. So, for instance, uh, some increased oomph uh, to do kind of a world-facing um, sensor uh, specific that you wouldn't necessarily need uh, on a smartphone. So, this is the beginning, not the end. We're on a continuum. I like what these guys are doing. All right. One more thing. Uh, Apple held its uh, WWDC event this week as well. What was your takeaway from their uh, always long keynote? <laughs> yeah, it was do? an hour and 32 minutes. Um, so it's all about expectations going in and then what happened. I didn't expect any new hardware, even though they need some new hardware. Uh, I expected them to double down on reliability and performance, and that's the first thing that uh, Federighi uh, came up when he talked about uh, yeah. iOS. Uh, so, you know, we saw, I'm excited about the performance uh, enhancements. You know, we have to see exactly what they are. I saw some crazy numbers that uh, set a 50% improvement on uh, keyboard coming up and down on a, on a yep. 6S. Right. Yep. And these are things that real people and real users complain about. And because I have them all around in my family and in coffee shops and I see people talking about this. I haven't done any yeah. primary research on this, but but I know this is real. Uh, and, and to me, Apple had extended themselves so far over the last two years, whether it was watch, uh, HomePod, uh, increased multitasking on iPad and you know I've, <laughs> I've run development groups and sometimes you just get you have too many things going on and with Apple everything has to work together flawlessly which is uh, an Apple burden they use uh, many times proprietary interfaces like AirPlay 2 to, to that they they have to get right so they have so yeah. many balls near that this is what I was expected so uh, digital life management uh, essentially, even though I think the timing is conspicuous here, I think we needed uh, you know, the ability to sure. manage what we did five years ago as opposed to you know, we have a backlash on Silicon Valley and then Facebook furor pops up and, and here we go. We have Google and Apple uh, yep. uh, adding this digital life management. Uh, Siri uh, was interesting. I think, uh, you know... The predominant view is on Siri is that it's not as powerful as Alexa Assistant and in some cases even Cortana. Uh, some of it's fair, some of it's not. Siri is still the only assistant that you can take with you on watch, phone, tablet, uh, computer, and, and speaker, but there are some things that it's, it's not as good at. And Apple added a feature called Shortcuts, which is essentially uh, fine-tuned ability to tell Siri what to do that's very complex that says, hey, Siri, I'm coming home. And then Siri will automatically turn on music, uh, dim the lights, open the garage door, uh, send an iMessage to your kids, uh, all of that. And, and to me, it's a very interesting strategic way of dealing with all the criticism of Siri, which is if Alexa and Assistant are macro, Apple and Siri are going micro to do exactly what you want. Now, <laughs> I think to tech aficionados, they're going to love this, 
right? Yeah. The same folks who, who you know, go in and manipulate Alexa skills and have it, um, uh, they pull, you know, three or four different skills together as a set. They're going to love this stuff. Mm-hmm. But for mainstream users, no, I just don't see it. I mean, Apple has always been the company who you have it our way as opposed to, let's say, Windows sure. and Android that, that is, uh, you know, have it your way. Anyways, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I'm probably going to load the, um, the beta version uh, next week Got as it. soon as I get uh, uh, back into the office. Probably the biggest announcement here. Uh, was this new notion of having iOS apps on Mac OS. You know, Apple's in a very interesting strategic quandary. They have so much power with iOS. I mean, everything emanates off of iOS. And Mac OS can look kind of well, you know, underinvested in, and not nearly as interesting as, as what's going on with iOS. So um, Craig Federighi got up on stage and talked about the beginning of how developers would architect iOS to run on Mac OS. Uh, Apple's going to eat their own dog food first with apps like Home uh, and uh, Stocks and, uh. and Voice Memo. <laughs> but 2019 is when the developers will will get engaged. And you know, it's funny. I, I ironically think of Windows 10 and all the effort that Microsoft is putting into Windows 10 uh, to get applications. Running uh, in there, style. yeah, or, or even uh, progressive web apps, PWAs. Yeah. If nothing else, they give you notifications, similar windowing on <laughs> smaller devices and larger devices. Yeah. But uh, it's getting interesting, yeah. and to be honest with you, this is going a different direction. I, I really thought that Apple was going to start to sunset Mac OS and really start to beef up iOS. Uh, what are your thoughts? Um, I think I, you know I had the same same vision as you there. Um, the I, I I this could still be the first step to that though, right? If if you're trying to get developers aware of how you develop or how you convert an iOS app to a Mac form factor, right? To notebooks and and all in ones and PCs and stuff, you you might be starting that um, convergence of development ideals, right? So. How do you how do you teach these guys to do that? There, I, I think with all the rumors that have happened and, and come through that seem very substantial of you know ARM eventually or Apple eventually using their ARM based architecture for processors for their MacBooks. You know maybe starting with one of the lower cost, lower power options, uh, and going from there. That this is something that they'll have to cross that bridge, um, and and I think the time frames make sense based on what was it 2022 2021 for for those types of engagements here you've got the software ecosystem given the tools to begin evolving uh it kind of makes sense they've microsoft or apple rather pushed out sunsetting OpenGL and OpenCL, uh which will force future development all onto their own api which gives them a lot of flexibility for how these developers interact with this hardware, if they happen to go the custom hardware route, so yeah, I I, I think it makes sense. It's not quite the um, uh, uh, iOS coming to Mac OS thing that many had predicted. It wasn't as extreme as some people thought it would be, but it's clearly that there's a that, that there's a there's going to be a push here. 
Yeah, and I think, I, I, I believe, yeah, and I believe ultimately that we will have one operating system. Um, I, I, I agree, yeah. And while the incessant no came pounding on the stage, uh, I think that, that that is going to be the future. Yeah, and it's, it's going to be pretty interesting to see how uh, we all adapt to it as well all right everybody that's going to be it for the episode if you uh, uh want to catch up with us all of our previous episodes or make sure you're subscribed to future ones you can find all that information at thetechanalysts.com you can find rss files or you can find us on itunes or google play uh, and we will look forward to talking to you in the next episode thanks guys take care